It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Hello and welcome to the Dollars and Cents edition of Slate Money, your weekly guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and on the show this week, the revolving door between government and lucrative Wall Street jobs, dollar store mergers, and some nerdery on premium bonds. I'm joined by my regular guests, Kathy O'Neill, head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University. Hi, Felix. And Slate's own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hey, Felix. How you doing? I'm, I'm fantastic. I'm always happy when I'm on this podcast. First thing which I'm going to do is we are going to go back to that card trick. This is going to be the fourth podcast in a row we have talked about this card trick we have talked about this card trick more than we have talked about argentina tim geithner or any other subject for some reason this is the subject which refuses to go away we devoted an entire segment to the card trick last week and uh, if you didn't listen to last week's podcast you should stop listening to this one and listen to last one's because it was awesome with emmanuel derman a special guest from columbia university but, but there's one more thing which we wanted to add. Amazingly, even after devoting a whole segment to this card trick, there was a big thing we missed. And I am going to introduce this with a little voicemail that was left for us by the one, the only, Matt Levine of Bloomberg View, the world's greatest finance blogger. And he wrote in and said this. Hey, guys. I wanted to push back on the idea that there was no way to define the probability for the magician's card trick. It's actually a pretty common trick, right, for a magician to pick one card from a shuffled deck. Sometimes he gets it right because he's a magician. Sometimes he gets it wrong because he's building to a different effect. He's going to pull the card out of your pocket later or something like that. You can sort of estimate how often magicians do this and how often they get it right. You divide those two numbers, and that gives you a rough estimate for the probability that this magician is going to get it right this time. Now, you can object to that, right? Kathy would object, well, we don't know those numbers. We don't have the data, so we can't really estimate the probabilities. Felix would object, well, even if we had the data, extrapolating from that past data to predict future events is, is very risky. And Emmanuel Derman would object, look, this is not a random process. This is an individual guy applying a deterministic process, so it's just inappropriate to apply the concept of probability to him. And that's all true, but it's kind of why traders don't trust quants, right? You can make a reasoned guess about how often magicians get this right. You've, you've seen magic acts. You have some sense of what effect they're going for. And it can sometimes be inappropriate to apply you know, past frequencies to estimate future events, but we do it all the time, right? Companies employ data scientists. We have some sense of what it means to say, you know, this Facebook user has a 20% chance of clicking on this ad, even though for the Facebook user... It's not, a, it's not a random process. Think of it this way. You go to this magic show with your trading desk to celebrate your first day on the job as a Wall Street quant. As the guy is pulling the card out of the deck, your trader turns to you and says, make me a market on whether it's going to be the ace of diamonds. Are you really going to say, 
that probability is undefined. For myself, I'd probably make a market around 30%, right? I think that this is not a, just getting the card right is not a particularly impressive magic effect, and so he's probably building to something else. But what do I know, right? I, I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it, and I wouldn't put a 0% probability on it. But I do think it's possible to estimate a probability here. In fact, if I were still working on Wall Street, I might use this as an interview question. I'd probably phrase it as make me a market rather than what is the probability. But obviously, if someone said, I think the probability is one out of 52, that would be wrong. But I also think saying we don't have enough information in this question is undefined would sort of be equally wrong. This, this people, is why Matt Levine is so amazing and fabulous. Uh, and it chimes in with a letter we got from John Norton, who said that what we were talking about, quote, touches on the chief ideological divide in probability and statistics. And this ideological divide is the divide between frequentists and Bayesians. So frequentists are the people who need to see something happen a lot of times and then try and work out how often it happens and derive a probability from that. And Bayesians are, well, basically what Matt was just talking about. Kathy, without going into the question of whether your objection is, um, you know, what you would actually say, do you think that the Bayesian analysis of the card trick is something which holds up, which makes sense? Oh, totally. I mean, in fact, I was, you know, to be fair, last week, I never said there's no such thing as this probability. No, I, I think I said that. Oh, okay. I, I, <laughs> my, I thought it's it my bad on that one. Um, I, you know, I absolutely think that you could, def you could, you could define the probability as sort of the market's definition of the probability. And I which think, is what Matt just did. Which is what Matt's just did, and, and that's what traders do. And I agree with him that anytime you can make a market on something, you can have a sense of what people are, are where, where the market actually thinks it is. I also glad, I'm also glad that he brought up the point that he wouldn't put a lot of money on it at, a, at any given number, 30%. He said he'd put, he, he would guess it's around 30%, but he wasn't going to put a lot of money on it. That also gives you the, the, the sense of uncertainty, which is part of this question. And I just want to make one more remark, which is that if he, you know, he also made that remark that he would not have used the word probability. He would have used the phrase, make a market for me in his interview question. And that is what I wanted to make the point of last week, which is that when you say the words probability, you are sort of triggering this concept of a mathematical, finite, well-defined process, which this isn't. This is a messy human process. And markets make more sense in that paradigm. Jordan, what does it mean to make a market? Felix, I was actually <laughs> going to ask you to define that. I think you're a lot, you'd be a lot better at explaining that to the crowd okay. than I am. So I will tell you, Jordan, what it means to make a market. What it means is that you have two prices, which are known as the bid and the ask or the bid and the offer. And the bid price is the lower price, which is the price which you're willing to pay for something, and the offer is the higher price, which is the price at which you're willing to sell that thing. So the classic example would be in the stock market, right? If I'm willing to buy IBM for $19.47 and I'm willing to sell IBM for $19.53, then what I'm doing is I'm making a market in IBM shares. I will both buy them and sell them at the right price. What, what it allows you to do if you have a market is it allows you to gauge the sort of average, uh, average guess that the, the society has, at least the betting society has about something. So we don't have to have consensus. Some people think it's going to be bigger than 30%. They're willing to bet on that. Some people think it's going to be less. And it basically averages out. So, okay, so, where, where you, gonna, so the point okay, is yeah. where you get the trade, that's, that's where you get the wisdom of crowds. And if IBM winds up trading at $19.50, 
sense, then that's kind of the market consensus. Okay, so my question is this, because I'm used to hearing the phrase make a market in the context of actually trading stocks. So this is when Matt says, or I guess this is some investor investment banking, I'm just not really familiar with, but when he says just make a theoretical market. Yeah. No, no, this how, is a real market. So okay, you're, so how in, does he, you're yeah. in the, yeah. you're in the audience of the card, of, yeah. of, of the magic trick. And the trader turns to the quant and says, make me a market on, is, the next, is this card the ace of diamonds? So what we're going to do is I'm going to create a contract which pays out at 100, yeah. $100 if it's the ace of diamonds. How much would you pay for that contract? How much would you buy it for? How much would you sell it for? So okay. let's say that this contract, you know it's going to pay $100 if the card is the ace of diamonds. What... Matt is saying is he would buy that contract for 30 bucks. Okay, I see. I see. Um, and what I'm saying is that if you're actually making a market, you're giving two prices, not one. And you wouldn't say, I would buy it for 29 and sell it for 31 because you don't have that much certainty about what is going on. What you would actually say is, I would buy it for 15 and sell it for 45. And the fact that those two numbers are so far apart is a good indication that we have a very that we really don't know what the probability is That's here. a really beautiful way of saying it, Felix. It is, it is this distance between your buy and sell okay. that, that shows how uncertain you are about it. But if you had the 1545 thing and you saw it selling, selling for 10, you would buy that immediately and it would bring the price up to 10. And then somebody else who is like, okay, I'd, I'd, be, I'd pay more than 10 for that. Matt Levine thinks it's 30. So right. he, he, would, you know, he would buy and he would start bidding the price all the way up to... So, okay. 30. I see. so it's I not see. a consensus exactly because people don't agree. They have different opinions, but it becomes a fixed price. Yeah. And so in that sense, it's, you can think of it as a probability. Okay. That makes more sense now. Anyway, I think it's totally valid. I think he's right. And I'm glad he, I'm glad he sent us that message. Thank but, you, Matt. But it does go back to the original point, which is that 1 in 52 is still probably wrong. The original, original point. Yes. If 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 you if someone says make a market and the answer is like someone divides 100 by 52 – they don't really get it. And on which note, we have just spent <laughs> an entire segment on the card trick again. I, I apologize to all my listeners who are sick to the eyeballs of the card trick. We will try not to ever mention this subject ever again. <laughs> From the well-worn topic of card tricks to the even more well-worn topic of revolving doors in government, Jordan, what's the news this week? The news is that uh, former Republican House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, who in a, a sort of shocking result lost a primary election to a basically unknown college professor, um, has decided to take a job on Wall Street. As he is going to the investment, the boutique investment bank, Molis. And of course, after this news came out, a kind of group of anti-bank lobbyists started saying, well, obviously, Eric Cantor has no experience in finance whatsoever. He's clearly going to this job and being paid $3.4 million for this year so that he can, you know, peddle his influence. This year and next. It's actually, to be fair, two years. It's through the end well, of year calendar year half. 2015. Yeah. Exactly. And then there's some vesting, etc. Um, but anyway, they're saying this is another instance of, you know, a former congressman is going to go and peddle, you know, sell his influence. Um, and this has struck a lot of people, including myself, as preposterous for a number of reasons. He's not um, wait, selling what, his influence? What's pr- what's selling part him? is preposterous? Yes. Um, so, okay, here's, here's the, the gut reason why this struck me as preposterous, that he's selling influences and going to do any actual kind of lobbying, which is that 
if you were to hire an actually experienced lobbyist to do this, you wouldn't have to pay $3.4 million to do it. You could actually get a firm, or if you were, you could get a whole firm to do that, one of the top lobbying firms in D.C. Just as far as the price they're paying for him, that is just, I mean, anyone who, like... But selling influence isn't the same as lobbying necessarily, is it? It's it's basically... So there's sort of a taxonomy of old congressmen who go into lobby. Um, and most of the time where you, you hear about this kind of thing is when they're actually going to a lobbying firm, right? Um, and there are a few former congressmen, uh, former senators, whatnot. Uh, Trent Lott and John Bro, for instance, are some of the exam- greatest examples who are, are fabulous at the job of lobbying, actually going and using their Rolodex to go and convince people in Congress to do something for their clients. Um, a lot of guys who end up joining these firms get paid a lot of money essentially to be a mascot. They show up and they are really there to impress clients, which is one of the running theories for what Eric Cantor is actually going to be doing at this firm. He's there to essentially make Molas look more important. And the reason that they're worth... But, but the reason that he makes Molas look more important is because he is an important and influence, influential person. He's selling his influence to Molas, not necessarily his influence and the ability to get legislation passed. Normally, you know, M&A clients aren't particularly interested in legislation, except for maybe some antitrust stuff. But just in terms of being able to get introductions to people who matter, get his phone calls returned, that kind of influence is important and valuable. No? So I just yeah. want to separate the two issues yeah. because they're both kind of skeevy. So we could we could yeah. just, we could separate them and then decide whether which one is worse. But I think what you're saying is it's PR for Molas, which it clearly is. I mean, just and I just want to make the point that just the the fact that he got hired by Molas made Molas appear on the map. No one had ever heard of Molas before. Yes, that. absolutely. That would not have happened if they'd hired a lobbying firm, even if it was cheaper. Yes, but that's... So yeah. that's one issue. The other issue is whether he's actually going to use his friendships on um, in in D.C. to help Mo, uh, Molas like, achieve their yeah. policy aims. Yeah, and That's two different issues, they're, and they're both skeevy. There are two different issues. I mean, w- one of the reasons why it seems unlikely that he's really going to go in there and actually be doing much in terms of policy is because he was a, a congressman. Uh, Molas does mergers and acquisitions. Their main concern is antitrust issues. Um, so let's, let's stipulate that he's not going to be trying to pass legislation. Yeah. I think this is, you know, this is easy to see. But that doesn't mean that, I mean, if he's not being paid for his importance and his connections in D.C., what is he being paid for? I mean, he's being paid, uh, so the, he's being paid for his importance. But here, here's one of the... Um, one of the uh, better explanations I ever got from the head of a major lobbying firm about these kind of old guys, who, these, form, these former congressional heavyweights who sometimes come to firms, a lot of the time it, he, what he said to me is it's sort of like the old boxer who sits at the front of a restaurant and, and greets the new patrons. Um, you know, it's really fun for a former executive or for an executive to go play golf with the former uh, House Majority Leader or for the former uh, – you know, for the former House Majority Leader, the former Speaker, um, that this is this is an attraction, and you know he's used to kind of walking the corridors of power. He's good at talking to important people. He can be a really good. He's going to be good at probably landing business, and yeah, he can make some calls here and there. He can't spend technically more than twenty percent of his time actually making contact with uh, because of lobbying rules, making contact with people on. But the But that's bill. fine because he's but, going to be spending way more of his time going out for golf with CEOs and persuading them to use Molas. Yeah, exactly. And that that's the number one. I mean, that is his function. I'm here. just going to bring up a third topic, which we haven't delved into, which doesn't require him to actually introduce anyone to anyone in D.C., but he has knowledge of what who's influential no. in D.C. now. Knowledge is so cheap. 
That's <laughs> that's the thing. You really DC, think so? Yeah, that kind of knowledge is cheap on in DC. I mean, and it's you know, I, I don't think people aren't going to pay three point four million just for that kind of knowledge. There are a lot of people who have it. Well, you know, three point four million dollars is 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 nothing on Wall Street. I know that's people who get paid much more. Yeah, Kathy, it's not that much. Is Timmy uh, Timmy Geithner at Warburg <laughs> Pincus just a mascot too? I I don't know if that's okay. I think that's I I actually I think that's. I, I don't know. There, there is there isn't actually there is a, a range of different qualifications. Cantor has no qualifications. Someone like Jack Lou probably has more qualifications. Was Rahm Emanuel qualified to do whatever he was doing and made like sixteen million dollars in two years? It's well, we will revisit this question in a future podcast. But first of all, we want to talk about dollar stores because that is actually more interesting. Okay, so this is actually a pretty complicated story, but I'll do my best. In July, Dollar Tree offered. Seventy-four fifty a share to acquire Family Dollar. Okay, just bear with me. Dollar Tree wanted to get Family Dollar, and then so that we'll just call them Tree and Family. Yeah, because honestly, otherwise there will be far too many dollars. Tree and Family. Okay, Tree wanted to get Family, and then Dollar General in August, who is currently the largest of the dollar stores, was like... They think General as in General Electric big. (laughs) We're just going to call it General. Right. So General's the big guy and and was being threatened by this possible um, merger because then he would not... Then General would no longer be the biggest. So Dollar General is like, hey, yo, don't merge. Why don't I take you guys over instead? I'll... Because Family Dollar was, in fact, in trouble. So Dollar General decided to um, offer a little bit more, in particular $78.50, um, per share. To, that was in August 21st. It was immediately rejected by family. Um, the family uh, rejected the general. Family rejected the general on the grounds that they, they wouldn't pass antitrust um, concerns. And then more recently, Dollar General actually upped its offer to $80 a share. And just today, I think family um, again rejected this family bid. does not want to be bought by general. Okay. But what but the key thing to know here is that family already has an agreement to be bought by by Dollar Tree. By Tree. Yes. So we really tree. can we have a graph? Is there, <laughs> yes. There needs so to be a- so basically the way it breaks down is that both Tree and General want to buy family. That's good. That's general good. is offering more money. But family wants to go to the altar with tree. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. I've been, you know, one of the reasons I want to talk about this today is because I keep on hearing this confused notion that this couldn't possibly be an antitrust issue because these were all dollar stores. And how can you be anti-competitive with dollar if everything's fixed at a dollar? Like you can't be price competitive. And I just want to throw that out the window for a couple of reasons. First of all, only Dollar Tree, as I understand it, actually sells things strictly for a dollar. All of both, the other both general and family sell for almost, well, normally single-digit sums, but yes. well over a dollar. According to a call, general says it only sells about a quarter of its merchandise for a dollar or less. So in any case, so if you if you have differing prices, you clearly can be anti-competitive. You, in other words, once every like let's just say in the extreme case, there's only one dollar store left, um, and it doesn't only charge a dollar, it could suddenly charge twice as much, and, and that would be a problem um, for antitrust concerns. But the other thing is, and I just want to make this point, because you have to understand what a critical um, thing these, guys, these stores do for the economy. Um, this is, this is a, these are stores that 
that are for basically very low-income people. And the, they have incredibly thin margins. Uh, 42% of the customers, at least a couple years ago, earned less than $30,000 a year. These are people that are living paycheck to paycheck. And they go in, they don't have enough money to do a, their laundry in a reasonable way. So they go into a dollar store and buy a, like a small box of detergent for a dollar. Um, and if if there was only one dollar store, there could be less detergent in that one dollar box. And that's that's important to know that the so, price might so stay what, the same. So what you're saying is, if they have a choice of dollar stores to go to, then they will go to the dollar store which gives them the bigger box of detergent exactly. for one dollar. But if there's lots of mergers, they will not have so much of a choice. That's exactly right. Now I half agree with that, and I basically half agree with that because there are actually very few areas where there's a significant choice, where these companies actually compete head-to-head. Tree, um, which is being taken over, does have a certain number of locations um, which are in the same vicinity as General, and General has said that it will actually sell off those stores. Family is being taken over. Tree is buying family. I am so confused. (laughs) (laughs) Family, family, Dollar General. So uh, let me no, just no. let me just address tree, that. Tree, tree has said that they will sell. Tree said no. that if they buy family. Yes, they will sell off a certain. And, they will divest a certain and number of locations. Tree and general and general will divest even more. General will divest like fifteen hundred stores. Yeah, they're getting ready to just like fire so. So many general people actually to. has a, quite a bit of overlap with family, right. but, but um, dollar dollar tree has less overlap with family, which is why it's less of an antitrust concern. Yes, and, and there's also there, there have been some documented cases where uh the where management at uh, dollar at general has said that <laughs> fam that that it, it considers um family to be a, a major uh driver or, or a major competitor and, and an and an influence on its own pricing it is yes. said that they actually do think of competition from family as a as a significant concern and so if that competition were lessened the antitrust calculations well, would, they, pri- not, would they, prices rise they're not saying that very loudly the the official they have said the official so. line from general and i think this is justifiable i can see this argument is that the what they're who they're really competing with is walmart and aldi rather than the dollar stores and then what happens is you go and do your big weekly or monthly shop at walmart and then you need something to you know because you ran out and you don't want to go all the way back to walmart so you'll just run to the dollar store and get it but the big thing is walmart and if it costs too too much more than what you would pay at walmart you won't buy it there anymore yeah Kathy, is yeah. that right? Well, as I understand it, Walmart is the biggest price influencer influencer on in general. But where there is no Walmart, it's a fight between Family Dollar and Dollar General. So that's that's the point. That's where antitrust lawyers come in and do their job. I do think it's worth scoping out for a moment just to talk about why this is also actually a fairly important merger is because there is this massive market for sub Walmart prices. Yep, um, that is something to remember. I mean, this is this isn't. You know, it's fun to talk about the goofy corporate aspects of this, and you can speculate about whether or not one of the reasons that family doesn't want to get bought by generals because the CEO essentially won't get to keep a job of any kind. That's like another subplot in all of this. Um, that it's it's really about like corporate compensation. But you know, in the end, um, it matters if competition here decreases and these prices go up because a lot of people, a lot of families in this country rely on having that those bargain bargain basement prices for, you know, canned tuna, for essentials, for whatever. Yep. Um, and it, you don't want to accidentally um, create a situation where 
you know, I mean, maybe if prices start rising at one of them, then, you know, someone else will swoop in and then, and, you know, kind of compete them back down. But you, you, you don't want to suddenly lay a burden on a lot of poor American households. Especially considering that the median income has been going down. Ah, yes. And there's not even the median we're interested in here. It's the, it's the bottom sort of 20%. That's right, yeah. And that's been going down even faster. Anyway, we are going to end with a segment on gambling and luck. Um, one of the big issues facing the American economy is that there are large numbers of people, young and old, who find it very difficult to save money. Because savings accounts are really, really boring things. You put 10 bucks in a savings account, and then a year later you have 10 bucks. There's really very little excitement there, and why would you ever want to do that? So, in Nebraska and Massachusetts and various other states, they have started experimenting with prize-linked savings accounts that basically for every $25 that you save, you get a lottery ticket, a little, you know, gamble. And there will be some prizes, $25 here, $50 there, all the way up to maybe $30,000. And the more money you have in your savings account, the more, the higher the chance that you can earn, well, not earn, but win thousands of dollars. And it turns out that if you give people the opportunity to win thousands of dollars just by saving, they're more likely to save. And that's a good thing, is it not, Kathy? You know, I'm really divided about this. Um, because it's just, I feel like it's a gateway drug to actual lotteries. It's like making... Do you think lo- actual lotteries need a gateway drug? Aren't, I mean, like, I just... Aren't actual, aren't actual lotteries more like the gateway drug to, like, actual gambling or, or like, to, you know... I, whatever. I'm. It's all relative. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like, you know, it's it's okay. It's okay. It's like, yeah, you're, if you're not going to save otherwise, and I appreciate that behavioral economists have realized, hey, this is a way of tricking people into saving because it makes it fun. But I do also feel like it just, it normalizes lotteries, which is like the worst thing. Like, if we can we do this and then stop doing lotteries? I mean, I just well, hate this, lotteries. This is, we, I, I can tell you that from an English perspective here, um, in England, we've had these things called premium bonds. In, in Great Britain, I should say, we've had these things called premium bonds for decades now, yeah. and they are hugely successful. Yeah. They are they are a beloved financial product. But how much lottery are, is there? Well, so let me explain what a premium bond is. A premium bond is a bond issued by the government. It's not a bank account at all. It's the bank. There are no banks involved. You buy a premium bond in much the same way that you would buy treasury bonds from Treasury Direct here in the US. And the face value of those bonds stays constant. You buy a bond for £100 and it's worth £100 and then you can sell it any time in the future for £100. And that's the interesting thing. They don't pay any coupon and there's no principal repayment. They're, They're redeemable on demand whenever you want. But they also carry a rate of interest, which is currently 1.3%. And the rate of interest is distributed very unevenly. It doesn't go to 1.3% interest to every single bond equally. It goes randomly to bondholders. So two bondholders every month will get a million pounds. 
and others will get a few thousand, someone will get 10,000. And so people want to increase the number of bonds they own because it increases their chances of winning a million pounds. And they're also saving. I think it works quite well. So, yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, I, I was doing a little bit of reading on, on premium bonds, and, and I was surprised. I mean, I was a little surprised. The BBC says about 21 million uh, in, uh, you know, Brit- uh, people in Great Britain, about a third of the population, have these things, which is, I mean, that, that's a, a stunningly successful financial product. But is there any sense of, of whether or not there's substitution going on here that some people who would be saving in with a normal account with interest um, are instead going for these bonds, or is it all additive? Do we is there any way to know that? I mean, I, I think it substitutes for investments. It does not. It does not substitute for savings. So it doesn't mean that people have less money in their savings accounts. Okay, it might mean that people have less money in the stock market or in regular bond funds or something like that. I also just want to say that in expected value, these are exactly the same thing as savings. So in some sense, it just doesn't matter. Okay. The downside is that you don't get any interest, but you don't lose your principal. The upside is high. So that's why people are excited about it. Even though the upside is very improbable, um, the downside is that you just never get interest. But also behaviorally, I, being English, (laughs) have um, in the past owned premium bonds. And I remember I owned a bunch of premium bonds when I was... A kid, like this, is something which you do when children are born. You give them mm-hmm. a couple of premium bonds, and you know, I don't know why it's just a tradition, and I guess. And I remember when I was about fourteen or so, I won ten thousand pounds on my premium. It might have been five thousand, but anyway, it was many thousands of pounds, and I won this, and it was a fantastic day, and I was extremely happy, and it made me feel good about having these bonds and saving, and. Over the decades since then, I have had various investment products. I've had stocks which go, went up and stocks which went down and mutual funds and all manner of stuff. And the total amount of money I have made on my investments since then is probably much more than five or 10,000 pounds. But I've never felt that good about my investments going up ever since then. Okay, let's go back to that question, though. How much other kinds of lotteries are there in Great Britain? Well, historically, there were very, very few. And then uh, about 20 years ago, they introduced this new one called the National Lottery. Um, But the premium bonds long predate that. And Mm -hmm. the National Lottery is is a classical lottery where if you don't win, you lose. You buy your lottery ticket and there's a 99.9% chance that that lottery ticket is going to expire worthless. So, You've just thrown that money away. So it's really not that similar. So that I'm curious, when the National Lottery started up in Great Britain, did premium bonds take a hit? Did people substitute over to the, the national one? Or did it seem like, again, that just people started gambling on that and also saving on premium Great question, because that's, that's what it brings back to me. Like, it's a natural experiment to see whether it is, in fact, a gateway drug. Yes, and, and it's, a, it's a question which sadly doesn't have an easy and obvious answer because it happened during a time when the bond markets in general were becoming much more institutionalized and the whole idea of individual retail investors owning government debt was becoming a little bit old-fashioned and did the decline in individual you know, holdings of government debt, was that related to the int- introduction of the lot- national lottery? You know, Who knows? Um, but I, I will say that we can all agree that Premium bonds and prize-linked savings accounts are much better things than lotteries. And that 
if we got rid of lotteries, that would be very good for poor people. Yeah. And that, you know, if lotteries hurt these savings products, then that's just reason number 5,602 not to have a lottery. I, I, I do think. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I 100% a, a, agree on all of that. I, I just want to add for the sake of, of realism um, that, unfortunately, the incentives for a state or for you know the U.S. government, for instance, uh, or really, for I guess, the incentive for states to ever get rid of their lotteries um, and replace them with something like these, like like the premium bonds or these accounts that uh, nonprofits are earning. Well, let me rephrase: there are no incentives really, because the states use this as a source of revenue. The the reason they they you know it's called a tax on poor, a secret tax on poor people is because it's it's treated like tax money. It's what funds education in a lot of cases and other uh, expenditures. So that's that's a, it, the idea that these would ever actually replace them is uh, sadly. I'm more an idealist than you. Sorry, you think Jordan. one day a state might yeah. just eliminate its lottery? I think it's, to it's completely conceivable, and I hope it happens soon. I, I would love it. I, I, you're, I, I wish I wasn't as cynical. <laughs> just because it sucks now doesn't mean it always has to suck. Should we do numbers, Felix? Let's do numbers, Kathy. I'll start. I start, have yes. the number 1,252. That is the uh, ratio of average CEO pay to worker pay in fast food restaurants in this country, 1,252, which um, just I brought it up because it's really large. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's approximately $23.8 million for CEOs on average versus 19000 for full-time workers. Not all of them are actually full-time and can get full-time hours. There was a, Yesterday, there was a nationwide um, protest to get a $15 minimum wage for fast food workers, which is what, what, um, why I brought it up. Jordan? My number. It's negative 2%, which is, uh, I guess, uh, continuing my theme I, I brought up a few times here, uh, the amount that the median net worth of, uh, fam- of American families dropped between 2010 and 2013. Um, so the set, the Federal Reserve Survey of Consumer Finances has come out. It's one of the main tools we have for understanding, um, I guess, wealth in America. Uh, and it showed essentially that the middle class continued to get a little bit poorer during uh, what has been called the recovery. And uh, that's uh, kind of what we all felt. Now we have some statistics to prove it yet again. My number is $25,000. My big news of the week for me is that I finally launched my big interactive tool on Fusion.net. It's an animated, interactive, data visualization charting tool, and it allows you to do all manner of fabulous charts showing how much money you will make um, with various different degrees. Um, Are you an arts graduate or a science graduate? Are you a man? Are you a woman? Um, the classic one is simply, do I go to, go, go, do I go to college or not? Um, and, and it turns out that if you do go to college, you lose out on four years of income, which you would otherwise be able to earn. But even accounting for that, college pays for itself after about 10 years. It's a good idea to go to college. But my number is $25,000, and that's just one of the many charts you can pull up. It's the difference between the earnings of male PhDs and female PhDs by the time they're maybe 25 years out of school. That's an annual difference? Annual difference. So that's female PhDs on average, the median earning is about $98,000, and male PhDs, it's about $123,000. And this difference between men and women 
You see it absolutely everywhere in these charts. You see it in college dropouts, in high school graduates, in people with masters, in people with arts degrees, science degrees.、Um, in fact, kind of the most shocking thing I found was that the median male college dropout earns more than the median female with a four-year undergraduate degree. This is a different segment, but it it just brings up a host of issues. First of all, like women don't negotiate as much, but also people lie to women in negotiations.、Um, different reasons for getting degrees, of course, but like maybe we can bring it up another. So,、topic. so I would like to put out a call to our listeners. If you go to fusion dot net slash lifetime underscore earnings,、um, this is my. Lovely interactive tool. I spent literally the past four months working on this, so I, I would encourage you to play around with it a bit and send us to slatemoney at slate dot com the most interesting charts that you find and look about men versus women, PhDs versus masters, arts versus sciences, or any other kind of charts that you find, and we will discuss it next week. We will see what kind of charts. And what kind of information my data visualization tool has managed to create, and see if you believe it too. I I want to I want people to be skeptical and be skeptical. All of the data here comes from a company called Payscale, will, and we can go into a lot more detail next week I, on whether that's reliable or not. I I will bring some of the skepticism along just in case. Excellent. <laughs> I will be the、um, even though I like Payscale. In any case, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening to Slate Money. If you liked the show, please subscribe in the iTunes Store and leave us a review to help spread the word. You can find us by searching for Slate Money. And yes, do send us your earnings charts or your comments. Please, no more comments about card tricks. We've had enough of those. For comments on anything else, to Slate Money. At Slate dot com, we really do appreciate that. The producers for Slate Money are Tracy Samuelson and Stan Alcorn, and the executive producer of all the Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weisman, I'm Felix Salmon. Until next week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus twenty-four-seven customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.